Welcome to the Group Practice Exchange Podcast, a podcast for psychotherapy group practice owners. I'm your host, Maureen Warbach. This episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes is the EHR that I use in my group practice, and I love it. It's got great customer service, awesome note templates, accurate reports like revenue reports for doing your payroll, and it has testing and med management functions. Get two free months at therapynotes.com forward slash r forward slash the group practice exchange. Hey everyone, today I have the author of the Profit First book, Mike McCallowitz with me. Hey Mike. Hey Maureen, how are you? I'm doing good, how are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, thank you. I know there's going to be a lot of excited people to hear this episode, so I'm really excited about that. I'm excited. You're excited that they're excited. I mean, this is exciting. (laughs) (laughs) So I really want to just be able to talk to you a little bit about, obviously, the Profit First system and some questions that myself and some of the members in my community have when it comes to our specific type of business and what we do. So we are all therapists that are group practice owners. And so I know that it can be a little bit different than some of the other businesses that you work with or that you talk to. So given that, I sent you earlier a Profit First, the assessment of Mm -hmm. one of the group practice owners that's a part of our community. And I figure we can use that as our template to kind of discuss what that looks like and any thoughts that you have about that, as well as I'll kind of throw in some questions that people kind of gave me to ask you throughout the process. Mm -hmm. Awesome. That'd be great. That's perfect. Cool. So do you know, just in looking at the assessment, it looks like it looks nice and clean. And I know it took me about three hours to figure out how to do it just because I'm not financially business savvy in that sort of sense. And I think a lot of group Mm. practice owners would say the same thing. We're really good at people skills and counseling. And we're always, you know, our thing that we're always working on is like the business side, especially the financial side. We're social workers. So we're not taught about money or to like money or to look at money. So this has kind of been an interesting shift in doing the profit first method. And I know that those of us who started around January, February have gotten to do a couple of quarters now and it's really fun and exciting. So it's kind of a, a shift. So when you look at these assessments, do you notice any common issues that people have when completing these? Because I know a lot of people ask questions on, I can't even figure out how to get started with this. It just seems so overwhelming. So uh, looking at it already, I see hmm, a couple questions that come to mind. This may be 100% right, but there may be some tweaks. So as I'm looking at it, and and uh, hopefully the people listening to this podcast can see the assessment too. Is that true? I can actually link to it. Yeah. Okay. I will link to it at the bottom. So I'll explain some of the stuff, assuming that they don't see it right now and then uh with they have it it'll be even easier but yeah in the in the top cell we call it top line revenue it's in the actual column this is what the business really did and it says two hundred and seventy five thousand in revenue mm-hmm. that's perfect so uh, that one i assume is 100 percent accurate and the, the good news about the profit first assessments when you're analyzing a business maybe the real number was 274.6 yes we don't need that degree of accuracy okay the whole goal of the instant assessment is to understand where our business 
has stood historically in profitability and other components of our business? And what actions do we need to take immediately to improve the business? So even if the numbers are off, sometimes by 10 or 20%, we can still get the exact results we need. So Really? Yeah. Okay. Specificity is not necessary. We just want to get close enough. I have a question to that really quick. I yeah. personally, when I did this, because I am uh, growing a lot, I, I feel like every year or two, I'm either moving into a larger space or I, in November, added a second location and hired you know seven more therapists and I'm looking into a third location. And every year is like the income is never like the previous one. So I did by month, doing it by my average month the past like six months because my um, income is pretty, it stably grows. It never really, it never goes down. Mm. Is that okay to do to like get a good sense versus doing a year? Because I feel like last year looks nothing like this year. Yeah, I see what you're saying. You could use a current month, but you do have to make it annualized. Yes. Okay, that's fine. Okay, perfect. So you can do that. And the reason we need to annualize it is that we're going to compare it or use a chart that has annual numbers to determine our profit first percentages. Perfect. So yes. Okay. So the cell that says 275 sounds perfect. The first kind of strange thing is this is all professional services, right? You're providing counseling and so forth. $110,000 in materials and subs sounds not typical. Now, I'm not saying it's not wrong. I couldn't imagine spending $110,000 on materials. Right. It's not materials. Yeah. It's probably subcontractors. So that's a possibility. Yes, it is. Okay. We have to be clear what a subcontractor is. Okay. A subcontractor is someone who works for our business on a on needed basis. The work they derive for us is to the benefit of delivering our services typically, meaning it's not a, uh, a graphic designer. It's someone that helps deliver the end service to my client. And they have typically their own business. Yep. So uh, my favorite example that makes it clear is if I build homes and I do $275,000 in revenue building homes and I have $110,000 of subcontractors, that's likely the plumber who does the puts the pipes in and the electrician who puts the wiring in and the other contractor who puts the sheetrock up. Those are subcontractors, meaning they don't just sheetrock for me. They do it for someone else. The guy that owns the electrical shop, it's his shop, his liability. So they're own independent businesses, and they're all delivering a service that is of an end benefit to my customer. It's a new home. If one of the people was an advertiser who makes brochures to market the houses, they are not a subcontractor. Yes, they own their own business. Yes, they can work for others. But the work they're delivering is not for the end benefit of the customer. It's just for promoting my business. Right. Operating expense. Yeah. So this question comes up a lot, even outside of the Profit First system with our business as group practice owners, is whether we should have 1099 independent contractors who own their own business and who are providing counseling services in our practice or having W-2 employees. So it's kind of, I'd say like 75% of group practice owners have employees. I have employees as well. I know this person right now, they're independent contractors. They do have their own business. And I know in our field, it is a little funky because it's not so much like with home building where the painter comes in and he's truly being contracted out and he paints for, you know, 20 other companies. But I know this person is also in the process right now of switching to W-2 models. So the 110000 is for his independent contractors, but they will essentially be employees in the next couple of months. I know he's in that process. 
But in terms of pay difference, typically in our field, we reduce by around 10% to give for the the taxes we absorb and malpractice insurance that we have to cover then. So that 110 would still be around 110 as W-2s, but maybe we're putting it then in the wrong category. Right, right. So if they're employees of your company, that 110 goes to operating expenses. It does. That's how I do it. Which is yep. why I was initially had emailed you because my percentages look so different than what's on your thing. I do 82% to operating expenses. 66% of that is to my employees and only 10 yep. or 11% is actual you know, expenses. Yeah. And that we see that far more often in a service-based business like you have to offer that there is no materials and subs. And that's why I kind of raised that red flag for okay. me that have 110 up there, but I understand it. And the next row down says real revenue. It so shows $165,000 in this case. Why we have this real revenue is that represents the revenue the company truly or really is making. Mm-hmm. It really generates $165,000 in revenue. And then it's basically transferring money from clients over to these subcontractors to the tune of 110000 Yes. I mean, literally, the client's saying, here's a check. and say, oh, okay, this check is for so-and-so. Mm-hmm. So I'm handing it over. So we make this adjustment to say you don't have a $275,000 business. So don't act like that. You have a $165,000 business. Let's act just like that. Right. So that's why we do that adjustment. The next sell down says profit. There's zero profit. That's very typical. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's very infrequent that a company will be paying a profit distribution above and beyond what the owner takes in pay. So I expect that to be zero. I don't want that to be zero, but I expect that to be zero. And when we go into the adjustment columns, we're going to start reserving money for profit. Next thing is the owner is taking uh, nearly $100,000 in pay, which that makes sense. When we do the assessment, you'll see we're actually suggesting a slightly lower compensation to the owner. Mm-hmm. Why is that? We want the owner to take as much as possible, right? Yeah. Well, we do, but not as pay because what we found is people adjust their lifestyle to match what regular compensation they take. So if a person takes home $100,000 a year, most people will live a $100,000 lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And the second some kind of anomaly happens, they're in real trouble. We maximize our life to the, the last penny we're taking home. So we want to take home as much as we reasonably can to live comfortably, but we want the business to have reserves for the other necessities in life. Mm-hmm. So that's why in this case, when we do this analysis, we're actually suggesting curtailing the compensation by about 15000 bucks. Uh, next count is tax. The tax count, this business says it had $9,000 in taxes that the business paid. I'm also suspect of that. I'm not saying that's wrong. It's quite possible. But for most businesses, the business doesn't pay any of the taxes. The owner, in fact, is paying the taxes themselves. It comes out of their personal pay. Right. So what this person saying is that the business actually paid the taxes to the tune of 9000 for them. So I just question if that's true. Okay. I can talk with him about that and see, and I can edit the uh, post that goes with this afterwards. I know that a lot of us in our line of business do pay some portion of it based off of our previous year's estimated income. They give you, you know, the estimated income. I know a lot of us pay through our business that amount, but what I do notice is that almost 100% of us at the end of the year, because we're constantly like a growing business and hiring more employees and stuff, end up owing a whole lot more. And then that leftover, like I did this last year before I read your book, I you know paid my estimated taxes through my business. But then at the end of the year, because I'm an S-corp, 
it gets, you know, we do our taxes all together. I pay then personally the extra, you know, 12,000 that I owed or whatever through my Mm -hmm. personal side. So this is, you know, since reading your book, a shift that I've done as well to really make sure that all of the taxes just get paid through the business. Love it. Love it. Love it. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Yeah. So, and then the last account is the operating expenses. Uh, This owner says it's 58,000. What I would do then is I would add up all the cells that are filled in for profit, which is zero, owner's pay, which is 98 in this case, tax, which is nine, operating expenses, which is 58, and make sure it matches real revenue. Yes. So uh, just eyeballing it, it looks like it does, and that means we have a balanced assessment here. Uh, the next column is the percentages. Now, these PF percentages that we see for profit, it says 5%, owner's pay says 50%, tax 15%, and operating expenses 30%. That is just a copy and transfer. I did a uh, analysis of about a thousand companies, a study of a mix of companies, everything from pizza shops to psychotherapists to you know lawyers and accountants to manufacturers. And instead of saying what's the industry average for an industry, I simply ask what do the fiscally elite do? Mm-hmm. A different question. You know, what what do the healthiest businesses achieve based upon the size of the business? And what I did was I looked at the company's real revenue, the revenue it actually generates. In this case this business was 165. And said so when a business is at 165K, what is the percentages that a really fiscally elite company would be allocating money to these purposes? So that's how I got these percentages. And the percentages are for range sizes. So I think I did businesses under 250,000, businesses 250 to 500,000, right. and all the way up to 50 million. Yeah. The, the important thing about these percentages, these are called TAPS, stands for target allocation percentages. I'm triple underlining the word target. That does not mean a starting point. It's simply what we're targeting for the future. I also want to note that in smaller businesses in particular, some businesses will actually be outperforming those numbers and say, wow, I'm doing so great. Everything's fine. That's not necessarily true. These numbers are simply what the fiscally elite typically do. But some, especially for some smaller businesses, if you're doing better, that just means that congratulations, you're among the elite right now, but you can still do better. You can still ramp it up. So don't think that you should ever slow down your business's performance. So that's a mistake. Yes. So, okay. So I look at this analysis and in this case, this is pretty typical. The analysis says, you know, you're putting no money to a profit. The fiscally elite put 5% there. You should be allocating $8,250 toward profit annually. Mm-hmm. So we need to increase our profit contributions. The owner's taking 98000 And in this analysis, an owner of this size business would do about 82500 They're taking a little bit much. So we're going to allocate less money to paying them, decrease their annual compensation by 15000 which when people hear that, they have a heart attack and say, you can't take a penny from me. And my response is, uh, well, then grow your business more, but you're taking too much to allow the business to be healthy. And that's dangerous. Like you're actually crippling your business by taking how much compensation you do based upon the size of your business. So either adjust your income so the business can be healthy or make the business stronger and bigger so it can provide you that income going forward. So I have a question with that, which is one of my bigger questions that people were asking is how do you, given all of this, if you want to grow, how do you know financially looking at this picture when it's a good time to grow? And how do you do that with the profit first method? 
to make yeah. sure that you, in our business, again, we don't have a lot of costs. Like to grow would potentially mean having another location. And most of us don't buy locations. We rent a couple thousand dollars a month to have, you know, four or five offices. And then we have to furnish it, you know, with couches and chairs. We usually just, you know, sit and talk. So it's uh, maybe ten to 15000 to furnish a five office suite. And then we're done. We do, Then we have to hire people. And in our case, we don't pay employees unless they bring in income. So we never have to pay before we make the money as a business. So there is mm-hmm. really kind of a low risk on that end. So how do we look, use this assessment or look at this or go through this profit first and then know and implement it right when we're trying to grow? Like I know his goal yeah. here says he wants to get to 500,000 in the next two years. And of I think that's his top line revenue, what he's thinking of 500,000. I don't think real. And then to have six more or hire three or four more therapists. So I guess what were you saving it in then the operating expenses or do you, can you keep the profit? I know you say don't use profit for anything but profit. So, yeah, so th- this is the uh, biggest challenge I get with profit first. People say, but Mike, uh, how do I grow if I take profit? And I don't know who on this planet said that profit and growth are polar opposites. I don't know who said they're a dichotomy that if, if you want to grow, you can't have profit or if you want profit, you can't grow. Right. But whoever put that out there did a good job because everyone believes it. And it's total bullshit. It's yeah. a total freaking lie. And it, it's a shame. And now I'm spending, I think, the rest of my life trying to unwind <laughs> that misnomer. So you don't have to be less profitable to grow. You just have to find a way to grow that doesn't require money. And th- that's the key. Because when you have to grow without money, that means you have to be innovative. And when you're innovative, you're challenging industry norms. And when you're challenging industry norms, you're the rule breaker and you're redefining the industry. So the goal here is to think outside the box. That's what Profit First does. And we now have I mean, literally thousands of companies that we have documented doing Profit First. And we believe there's about 30, if not 40,000 companies now actually doing Profit First. But of the documented cases we get, consistently, the companies that focus on Profit First outgrow their competitors. Faster growth. And the question, of course, is why is it? Well, when you focus on profit, you have to work and use deliver only the services that are profitable. So you have to start curtailing non-profitable services. And when you start reducing your service set to be only profitable, you will start introducing less services, which means you have to be more focused on the client base you serve. You have less variety in your offering. That means you're going to have less variety in the clients you serve. So now you have fewer products for fewer variety of customers, which means to serve them, you need to have the most elite services. And if you have the most elite services for a narrow sect of people, that's called niche focus and niche specialization, which by the way, is the fastest growth method out there. Yeah. That's, we do that totally. Yeah. So, because people in the niche will say, you got to go to Maureen. She's like the best. So they actually start the automatic marketing for you. There goes your marketing costs. The customer's handling it for you automatically. And because it's your most profitable products, your profit increases. So the growth and profit go hand in hand. So, Whenever someone says, you know, I don't know how to grow now because I'm focusing on profit, my question is you're not thinking enough. How do you grow without putting money into it? How do you become famous among your customer base so they want to market for you? How do you look at the standard industry norm of you got to have another office or you got to lease it and do something that no one's ever done and change the rules of the industry? That's how you approach it. So how do you do it then from like – the financial perspective, where are you taking it from? The So not profit, I know, but then operating expenses, like the leftover that's in there. What? Taking what money? for To do what? To start the second location. Because you're saying... 
Yes. So first of all, my question is, how do I do this without spending any money? That's step one. Okay. Step two is if I got to spend some money, where do I find it? Absolutely. In your operating expenses. Okay, perfect. If you have enough operating expenses, that means your current business is not big enough to support that growth. We got to get more revenue coming right. in. So filter down. Okay. Um, that makes a ton of sense. I think people okay. were wanting to take from the profit. Oh, um, don't. And I, I right, right. Yeah. And I, after reading your book, I'm like, I went from not taking profit to taking profit and consi- not looking at it until the quarter ends and taking it, taking my 50% of it, and that's mine, not using it towards the business or anything else. But I think, you know, people were trying to figure out, they're very, I think in our industry, and it might be just common among people as a whole, are very black and white thinkers and they want to follow the rules. And so they're like, if I'm doing this, where do I take it from literally? You know, because there, there's going to be some, it costs us some money to open up another location but now it's. I think it'll make sense to people that they can use what's left in the operating expenses if they're actually making more than their uh, location allows for. To then they have extra, you know, leftover operating expenses. They can use that. Yeah, and, and I do want to challenge that because I think you're falling into the belief of well, it does take some money to open a location. Really? Who said that? And I'm not trying to be a schmuck here. Yeah. I'm just trying to drive on the point is that we, we follow the normal belief and therefore we follow that pattern. But what if we could get a space that's performance-based? We find a landlord says, I'm moving in. I don't have a space that can perform, but I'll give you a percentage of the revenue as it comes in from this space. Uh, Maybe someone will take you up on that. Yeah, I, mean, I we, get you. <laughs> yeah. So that's that. But it does come out of operating expenses if you need to spend money. Okay, perfect. I'm sorry. I cut you off on that whole piece as you were going through this. Was there anything you were oh. – finishing up on at the bottom you were on operating expenses with like the bleed yeah yeah the percentages oh so the last part is the bleed so we do this analysis we see that the owner's pay should be 82 five as opposed to 98 the tax reserve and this is the most common thing i see the taxes are far short yes so this business paid nine thousand dollars in taxes for the owner which is more than most businesses most businesses pay zero but really this business owner should the business uh, allocating and reserving $24,000 in taxes. Because think about it. This owner's taking home $82,000 plus another bonus on top of that, their profit at the end of the quarter that accumulates over the year to $8,000. So they're taking home dollars in the model. When you take home $90,000, your tax bill at the end of the year is not $9,000. Right. That's a 10% tax. It's more like a 3%, a 30% tax or 35%. And if we take 90,000 times, let's just say 30% for round number's sake, that adds up, I think, to $27,000. Well, the business has reserved 25000 uh, in this example. So it's almost there. These percentages aren't perfect, but it's almost there. Mm-hmm. So right now, I can tell just by looking at these numbers what the owner experiences. And the year comes, the tax bill due is due, and the owner goes, oh, mm-hmm. I don't have enough money. Mm-hmm. Um, how am I going to pay these taxes? Uh, I need to borrow some money. or And it, there's a kind of this panic mode. And we want to get out of that reactionary panic mode to just have the business reserve for the tax liability up front. Yep. I completely agree. I think the one thing that comes up the most between you know January and June is them realizing that they owe taxes on the previous year and hadn't saved up for it. And then you know asking the... Uh, the IRS, if they can have a payment plan, and then that right. messes into the following year's worth. Of, oh, yeah, wow. oh, I know it seems so messy. So, the, it's what's really great is you know if you figure out how to implement this the right way, that saves you all of that time, aggravation, money at the end of the year to come up with it for the taxes. Yeah, 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 exactly. 
Uh, and the last thing is the operating expenses. So we need to reduce operating expenses, and this is very common. Almost every business we analyzed uh, needs to reduce expenses. So in this chart, we see a business going from fifty-eight thousand down to just shy of fifty thousand. So about an eight thousand dollar cut in expenses. And we see this in most businesses. Most businesses are spending just too much money. Cutting expenses is pretty easy for most businesses to tune about 10 to 15% of their total spend. It's pretty easy. It's like, oh, we don't need to have that third phone. We don't use it. And we cut these things. At a certain point, you can overcut expenses where you start cutting into the muscle of the business where, you, you know, well, if I got rid of that employee, uh, there goes a big expense, but also that employee is running our entire business. That would be crushing. So you can't get rid of an employee, so to speak. So cutting 10% easy for most businesses. And I think that's where we start. Sometimes businesses cut more, but also we want to look to increase margin. So many people think profit first is about cutting costs only, and that's actually the minority of it. The increasing margin is the bigger, greater opportunity where we say, what other services or products can we offer at a premium so that our margin, the amount of profit per product increases dramatically? So for this business, I want to look at both. How do we cut some obvious costs and how do we increase margin? Awesome. And I think that's something that people in our industry are starting to get creative with because when we are doing counseling, we really kind of are narrow-minded in our focus of one-on-one counseling and that's all there is. Insurance pays X amount for it or you can charge only X amount per hourly session of counseling. But I'm noticing in, in the past few years that people are getting creative of you know, offering continuing education to other therapists where they can charge more or, you know, doing workshops or uh, running groups, which allow for more income in a given hour. So I get what you're saying with that. And I think that's in our industry, some of the things we might need to be looking at aside from niching ourselves down uh, as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I agree fully. So I want to just move this for this last little piece to how we can, because you have a little bit at the end of your book on how to make it work on the personal side. And I know a lot of people were mm. having questions from, you know, how do you apply the percentages and all that? And I know you, you have the, you know, income, the vault, the day-to-day debt destroyer, I think, and then recurring payments. Mm. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think people are in our industry, again, very black and white thinking, need the steps. How can we really implement this in a good way on our personal side when, you know, people have a lot of these fixed things like, you know, mortgages and debts that will always be there. So it's not, we're not able to like, you know, mortgage, we're not going to be reducing that until we're pretty much retiring. Yeah. Or health insurance or retirement accounts. Like where does that all fit in in this for you? Yep. Yep. So this is, uh, ultimately the system is nothing new. I didn't invent anything here. I I think I'm the first person that says, that said that this system, which is called the envelope system. I said it applies to business, right? So that was kind of the aha, like businesses can do this. When it comes to our personal life, it's the envelope system, something that's been tried and true and literally around since BC. Like There's a book called The Richest Man in Babylon. It refers all the way back to BC when this system was used. And the idea was instead of having money in one spot in a lump sum, that we instead we pre-allocate it to a purpose so we know what purpose that money is meant to serve right. before it actually gets spent. So what we did in our business here – at our business, we set multiple accounts. A profit account is the purpose of profit. The owner's pay is to pay the owner. That's its purpose. Tax to pay tax. Operating expenses to pay the expenses of the business. In our personal accounts, 
I found we have to allocate or create accounts for these different purposes. So I have in my own personal account, I have a mortgage account. And every time my money comes in, it flows from my business for my owner's pay, right? That's what pays me. It goes into my personal income account. That's what it's called. Then it gets divided to its envelopes, the mortgage envelope. I have a vacation envelope. I have my wife and I, we actually have our own debit card accounts. Her name's Krista. Krista's debit account, Mike's debit account. And that's for like little miscellaneous stuff. When I go out and need to get um, some hammer and nails at Home Depot to do some work on the house this weekend, it comes out of my debit card. When she goes you know, food shopping for dinner tonight and comes back from Wegmans, her new favorite store, yeah. when she comes back from Wegmans, that debit card's being used. Our children's college accounts, we have one for each child. And then that in turn gets transferred to a 529 plan. So what we have to do is create accounts for all of the significant expenses. I'm not saying for every expense. You don't have like a cable TV account, a telephone account. That's too much. That's crazy. It's crazy. (laughs) I found for most personal lives, somewhere between five to 10, maybe 12 accounts is enough. In my business, I find somewhere between five to eight accounts is enough, maybe nine or 10. So in the personal life, I have a few more accounts. Like we, for an automobile, for example, we own our automobiles, we, we buy our cars and we've paid them off, and but we still have a monthly installment going to an automobile. Not that we're paying for one, but when I'm ready to buy the next automobile, it's a purchase for cash. So there's money going to the automobile account every single, actually 10th and 25th, so twice a month, money's going in there, accumulating, and then once I hit the number, I can just look at the account and know what size or expensive car I can afford. And then I'll decide one day, okay, now I'm ready to buy a car and here's the top line I can spend on it. What do I really want to spend? So that's how it works on our home front. So is there any method that you use to figure out like how, because I am not doing it fully on my personal side because I'm honing in on using it right on the business end. On my personal side, I think I have seven accounts, like vacation for the kids. 504 or 403B plan or whatever it's called now. I'm thinking of the wrong one. 403B uh, is a retirement account to their college funds. They have college oh, that's funds. So a I have five, that's five, a five, yeah, there we go. So I have an account for that. I said vacation. My husband's a Chicago public school teacher, so he doesn't get paid over the summer. So we have an account that saves throughout the year so that he nice. quote unquote continues to get paid in the summer. So we have, a, uh, I think, about seven accounts and an emergency fund and all that. So, but I think I, I'm noticing with the questions that people were asking, and I haven't yet figured this out myself, is how do you know that you're then overspending? Because there isn't these nice categories that you have in the profit first where it says about 5% should go to this, about 10% should go to this. That what if we're opening, you know, all these accounts because we're over big overspenders and we have, you know, a student loan account, a mortgage account, a kids retire or yeah. kids school account, um, day to day. Like what if we're putting, you know, we're overspending and we don't know in what area we should not be overspending in. You know, what's our day-to-day? I might spend, you know, a hundred a day and another person puts $20 a day in their day-to-day account. Exactly. So that, that's a great one. And, and that's, that, that spawns me or sparks the desire for me to uh, write another book. Yes, please. Uh, <laughs> so I, I will get to that one day. But in the meantime, what I found is we look at our normal, our historical normal and have that as our base point and start there. Okay. For example, if I want to lose weight, the first step to losing weight is to determine how much do I weigh now. So it'd be a mistake for me to say to someone, oh, if you want to lose weight, lose 50 pounds. Well, if you are a male that weighs 
180 pounds and your ideal body weight is 170, but I just told you to lose 50 pounds, I actually may kill you or at least put you on, on the verge of death. So we have to look at your starting point. In our personal lives, first determine the categories. Then look historically, what have you spent as a percentage of your income? And that'll give you your starting percentages. You know, my mortgage is, I normally take in $10,000 a month, I'll say, and my mortgage is normally $1,000 a month. Well, that's 10%. So my starting point is 10%. Then my goal is for improvement. Now, mortgage won't change, but my income can change. And I could say, ideally, I want to get my mortgage down to 7%. And so, therefore, the only way to do is I need to increase my personal income for that number to work. Right. So look at your historical, determine where you are, and then determine what you want to target. And unfortunately, I don't have those numbers for you because I haven't researched or prepared for a book like that one yet, but that's at least how I get started on this process. And I think if we did that, we would be able to see where we feel like we're spending too much. I don't think it's too hard to be like, okay, well, on food and eating out, out of the 10,000 that I make in a month, I'm spending 3,000 of it on food and going out and not cooking at home. And, you know, unless you're not spending money anywhere else and that's all you like to do is eat out, maybe that's fine. But uh, other people like myself, if that was the case, I might realize, okay, I think I can, you know, really reduce that, still be able to go out to eat, but maybe not three meals a day every day anymore and, you know, twice a week instead. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You you can do a self-assessment and we just have to be just honest with ourselves. Yeah. Just be totally honest with yourselves. And if you are, you'll see where the opportunity is. And the goal is to make these improvements incrementally, not one fell shot. So it's easier, instead of saying, I eat three times a day right now or whatever it is, and based upon this assessment where I want to be, I should be out once a week, not you know, 21 times a week, to make that jump over is such an, uh, an abrupt change to our behaviors that are likely of a failure rate is much higher. But instead of eating out 21 times a week, three times a day, if I ate out 15 times a week, I still can go out every single day, but now it's two meals a day. It may not be as negatively impactful on my behavior. And then we'd ratchet down from 15 to seven, seven to three, and then ultimately get to that one over time. But just go in increments. Yes, I agree. I have noticed people who are starting the profit first in our community you know, getting really excited about it and then just really wanting to dive right in. Yes. You know, I can understand and appreciate that going that route will likely lead to failure or, or, you know, pulling from the profit account to pay for this because you did, you just did too much at once. Exactly. And and that's actually, you know, the the first person I think I know actually on this plan to do profit first was me because I'm the guy who wrote (laughs) wrote the book. So I set the system up for myself. And listen, I'm not saying I'm the first to do a system like this. This These systems exist. But this version or this flavor, I did for myself first. And I noticed how excited I got. I was like, this is it. I found the formula. I'm going to throw 50% profit. I'm going to get rich this way. And it was such an abrupt change that the system failed because my business couldn't support it. My lifestyle couldn't support it. And then I said, well, clearly the system sucks. This will never work. This was the dumbest idea ever. I can't do this. And then I said, hold on one second. I'm going right back to the place I was. Let me start again. So going all in is exciting and it feels like the right choice, but I've seen it hurt businesses, including my own. I've now and very quickly just to say, I got to go in slowly and consistently because I need to be there persistently. And that's what's worked for me. I love that. I love that statement. 
Cool. Yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> First ever Marine show. Yeah, there you go. So I don't want to keep you any longer, but was there anything else that I either didn't ask that you think is useful to know, or do you feel like I've kind of touched on touched on everything or gotten you to touch on everything, I should say? I hats off to you. I, I've never done an instant assessment on a show like this before. I think that's a genius idea. I hope it gives people good insights. My one final tip is if you haven't started Profit First yet, to get started, to set up one account. Like the idea of starting off slowly persists all the way to the level of setting up the accounts themselves. These are all different checking accounts you can set up, the income account, the real revenue account, the profit account, owner's pay. But just start off with a profit account because any business, anyone listening right now can call their bank and within 10 minutes online or on the phone have a one new checking account added or savings account. Then nickname it profit and starting to say allocate 1% of your money. Because if you've never taken a profit before, why not start with 1%? It's, it's small enough. And if you can run your business off $1,000, you can run your business off 1% less, which is $990. So it won't have a negative impact on your supporting your business. But you'll start seeing the profit accumulate. And when you start seeing some profit accumulate, no matter how small it is, you'll start winning yourself over to the system. And then you can build from there. That's great. Thank you so much. I think that's a good way to end this and uh, gives any yeah it'll give anyone who hasn't yet started the profit first method i think a little bit of like oomph to go do it and and, huge huh? mojo. yeah mojo there we go and the for mojo. everyone else who's already doing it and literally is just you know all in on this they're just going to be super excited to hear this so thanks again my pleasure yeah and now you just have to get to writing the uh profit first for non-professionals for, for personal yeah, life. Yeah, first lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, yeah. you have nothing else yeah. going on. You know, you're not doing podcasts or other... <laughs> I have another book that I'm working on feverishly and turning into my publisher. I'm actually super excited about that. And that's next. And then another book after that. But then maybe right after that. Oh my gosh. Second. Okay. You have a lot to do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it was so nice to, to meet you and to be able to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. 